can't believe you didn't let me do that. <laughs> it's the first time I've ever got to sit up here. I'll do it later. So I think what we're going to do is I'm going to talk for a little while, and then Mark's going to talk for a little while, and uh, then we'll open it up for questions. Um, thank you all for coming, and thank you to New York Insight. It's the first time in my life anybody's said that they can't hear me. <laughs> How about now? Better? Okay, thanks. So the main storyline in the book, from, from my vantage point, is um, very much informed by uh, my getting to meet this guy. I uh, am a reporter at ABC News, and um, I got assigned to cover religion against my will uh, when I was a young reporter. And I tried to tell Peter Jennings, my boss at the time, that I had no interest in the subject, and he said, uh, I'm not listening to you, go do it. And I spent many years sort of tromping around America's evangelical circles, and uh, I met Muslims and Mormons, and uh, spent time with rabbis and Wiccans and atheists, and ultimately stumbled into self-help. And I got a book recommended to me uh, f to read for a possible story by a guy named Eckhart Tolle. I don't know if anybody's heard of him. Okay, so uh, Eckhart Tolle uh, simultaneously blew my mind and um, uh, repulsed me kind of at the same time. Um, <laughs> I had never heard this diagnosis of the human condition before uh, that Eckhart Tolle, I think, uh, is able to articulate very well, which is that we're nuts. And our mind is this stew of desire, aversion, uh, well, he doesn't use that language, that's the Buddhist language, but uh, wanting, not wanting, judging, comparing ourselves to others, uh, constantly casting forward into the future, remembering the past, the sort of fog of memory and fantasy that we walk around in. Again, I had never heard any of this before, so I thought, this guy is brilliant, absolutely brilliant. And yet, the book is also filled with grandiloquence, pseudoscience, uh, straight-up bullshit, um, <laughs> and uh, I was just thrown into this funny place. It was the first time I'd read anything as part of my job as a quote-unquote religion reporter that had spoken to me, truly spoken to me, and, and at the same time, it totally baffled me at this, uh, simultaneously. So I was talking about this a lot around the house, and my <laughs> wife... Uh, I, don't, I wouldn't say she got tired of me talking about it, but she noticed that I was talking about it a lot and handed me a book one night, two books, by somebody named Dr. Mark Epstein. And I read one of the books, and I realized that all the smart stuff that Eckhart Tolle was saying was taken directly from the Buddha. And That's because I had taken it from Eckhart Tolle. Yeah, well, that's right. <laughs> it's all a circle. Um... And one of my frustrations with Tolle that I, I failed to mention is that he doesn't offer, from what I could see, any practical advice for, for dealing with this diagnosis that he so uh, clearly articulated. But Mark did offer something you could do. The problem was I really didn't want to do it. And it's what we just did, meditation. And it's largely because of the whole ringing bells thing and, um, you know, I could go on. But you know what I mean. Uh, 
I was, there was no way I was going to do this. Um, but I was really, really interested in, in this diagnosis. So I actually called Mark at his office, left him a message, and said, will you go have a beer with me? And uh, he said yes. So we met at a hotel in Tribeca, and um, not like the most obvious pairing of human beings in the world. Uh, and uh, we hit it off. And I basically asked him to be my friend um, and uh, didn't say I need a guru or anything like that, but um, implicitly I'm sure that was there. And we became friends, and the whole rest of the book is really my learning how to, my getting over the hump with meditation and learning how to integrate it into a very stressful, high-pressure job. Um, and I, I continually come back to Mark in a sort of Tuesdays with Maury uh, way to ask ask advice about how to do all of this stuff. And also, you know, can I set aside some of the crazier aspects of Buddhism uh, that made me uncomfortable? And he continuously, continually reassured me that it was fine. Um, uh, and I think I'll leave it there. Do you want to pick up and tell your version of events? Because <clears throat> journalists are not uh, trustworthy, so I might have <laughs> skewed the... Well, probably none of you have had a chance to read Dan's book yet, right? Okay, so you don't really know. What, um, <clears throat> it's really, it's really, I'm going to read you one little bit from it that, uh, that, that always makes me laugh. But, so he's really funny, um, but at the same time, he's, he's like totally serious. Um, and his, the, the journey that he um, describes actually began more or less, he left this out already, but began more or less with him having a, um, a kind of a panic attack on air while, while doing the news, right? Yeah, yeah. thanks for bringing that up. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, do you want to tell, you want to describe that for them? Or? Oh, that would be great. <laughs> so it's 2004 on Good Morning America. Uh, I was... Uh, filling in as the newsreader, which is the guy who comes on and sort of read the the the, up, the headlines at the top of every hour, and um, and I'd done the job before, so I didn't I wasn't nervous going into it, and almost immediately after the the main hosts of the show, Diane Sawyer and Charlie Gibson, tossed it over to me to do my little shtick, I was just overtaken with complete and utter terror. And I couldn't breathe, basically. And halfway through what was supposed to be six stories, I had to quit and throw it back to uh, the other anchors. And it was very embarrassing. And I, I had another one, actually, about a year later. And at that point, I went to see a psychiatrist. And uh, he was an expert in panic. And he, uh, which apparently is a, a thing. And, um, <laughs> and I said, he asked me a bunch of questions. And one of them was, do you do drugs? And I said, yes. And he leaned back and gave me a look that kind of said, okay, asshole. <laughs> Mystery solved. So uh, that, uh, that was an embarrassing moment. That was a humbling moment to really see what a moron I had been. The backstory on the drugs is that I had spent a lot of time in war zones for ABC News and... Uh, uh, came home and got depressed and, and had self-medicated. And, and that moment of the doctor asking me that question and my realizing, just being able to piece together this cascade of mindless decisions and how it had blown up in my face was a 
big moment for me and why Tolley was so powerful was I realized he was describing the uh, pattern of mind that usually leads us to do the things we are least proud of in our life. Um, my frustration was that he didn't, he didn't offer anything useful to do in response to that, um, at least that I could tell. Um, anyway, back to Mark. Okay. okay. <clears throat> so I think that's important to know that, the, that where Dan was coming, he was coming already from a, um, uh, a, you know, a vulnerable place. Um, uh, unusual for, for, a, for him in his successful career uh, that he was you know, proud of and ambitious within and, and so on. But, there, but so I like that as a shrink. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm drawn to that combination of um, uh, accomplishment and also vulnerability, I think. Um, and, and certainly I felt the uh, sincerity of, uh, of Dan's interest in the meditation, in the Dharma. Because uh, by the time he called me, as he, as he said, he was already pretty, he was pretty far along in, in terms of wading through what for him was the thicket of new age, you, you know, um, uh, truth and falsehood kind of thing. Um, so he, he, he asked really good questions. Like my, my basic uh, um, interest in continuing to meet with him was that uh, he, he asked really good questions. I also bought the meals. He also or, or, um, <laughs> ABC bought the meals. But yeah, so it was like a nice thing for me. Like I could go, I could go for breakfast with him, and he, he um, because of his wife giving him my books, he had actually read some of my stuff, and he was really thinking about it. And because he's a reporter who asks questions for uh, for a living, I think he he and he was also asking for himself. The the level of discussion I found very stimulating. Um, and I was at the same time working on this book that, you know, The Trauma of Everyday Life, which uh, took me seven years from start to finish, from when I first started thinking about to when it was completed, because um, I wasn't sure really what I was writing about. It was, I, I had already written a bunch of books where, that I had figured out from the beginning what I, you know, I knew why I had to write those books and what the point was. And this book was more elusive for me. I, I, I don't know how many of you have looked at it, but um, it has three or four different themes running through it, one, one of them being uh, the fact that the Buddha's mother died when he was a week old, and uh, that no one had really ever made anything of that fact. But, it, but I thought, oh, maybe I could make something of that fact, since I'm a, a, a psychiatrist. Um, and it must have some meaning, you know, whether it's true or not true, it's there in the story. So I, I thought um, at first that I wanted to write like a psychobiography of the Buddha, like, a, you know, Eric Erickson writing about Gandhi or Luther or something. Um, and so that, that theme of um, uh, you're trying to psychoanalyze the Buddha is there in the book. And then I started to think of the death of the Buddha's mother as like symbolic in a way of those kinds of early traumas that not all of us, but some of us uh, carry into adulthood. Uh, traumas that may or may not have happened before we had minds that were developed enough to actually know what was going on, you know, which like the, the conceptual mind kicks in around what, how old, two or three or four or something. 
But um, there's a lot of experience that happens when we're infants and in those early years. And um, it's not like we're not there for that experience, even though we can't remember it cognitively. We can't remember it cognitively or conceptually because we didn't really have language yet. So we weren't forming language memories, I think. But uh, we were forming some kind of memories, maybe more somatic memories or more emotional memories. So uh, as a as a person and as a patient uh, in therapy and as a meditator and then as a therapist for other people um, and as someone who has gotten so much from reading Winnicott, who's one of my psychoanalytic heroes who really writes about this, um, <clears throat> I'm, I'm very attuned to the, what you can think of as early developmental or relational traumas you know, traumas that happened before we were really there to experience them, that, uh, that we're maybe carrying in some way in our psyches, in our bodies, in our souls, in our minds, whatever. So uh, my experience over the years in going on these meditation retreats that I was trying to urge Dan towards um, and in becoming friends uh, through just through having been there from the beginning with Vipassana coming to the West, I was lucky enough to uh, become friends with some of the teachers, you know, Joseph Goldstein and Jack Kornfield and Sharon Salzberg and so on. So I knew, I knew the experience not just of the meditation student, but also the experience of the meditation teacher having to deal with people coming on these retreats and some of them, not all, it's not necessary to be a successful meditator. You know, if you don't have it, you're not uh, deficient. But a lot of people would come with these, with what seemed like these early primitive feelings of abandonment, you know, as if their mother had died when they were a week old and where was she? But you could talk about it in psychoanalytic terms as oral deprivation or oral rage or, you know, anal whatever. You could keep going up the stages. But that's always been very interesting to me, that, uh, that meditation, like therapy, opens up a space where you have another opportunity to deal with yourself on a kind of primitive level. And, and that's what I was getting at in the meditation that I was leading, like we can make room for that. That's, that's actually a good thing, that the meditation gives us a kind of stability, a kind of power, to uh, be with that stuff in a way that will allow it to transform. And I, and I think the, the, the message from Buddhism is that a lot of that stuff will transform spontaneously if you give it the right kind of attention, which is, I think, maybe what Eckhart Tolle is, try, is actually writing about when he talks about the pain body and, you know, all, all, of, that, all of that stuff. He is. Sharon describes him as correct but not useful. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, well, that might, I mean, he's like a New Age philosopher, but, but turned, turns a lot of people in an interesting direction. Yeah. Uh, anyway, I found it very, I found Dan's questions to me over, I don't know how many years it was, um, Five. but, but um, I found it very useful in shaping my own thinking that went into my book, finally, so that, uh, you know, if I go through that book, I can, I can remember, oh, I had a conversation with Dan about something and I got this idea and that conversation that I put into the book here and or we had a we went out to brunch once with Dan and his wife and Joseph and Sharon and had a whole conversation about samsara being the same as nirvana you know the mahayana view that 
this, that that nirvana is not separate from this reality, but is really part and parcel with this reality. It's just that we can't see it, you know, but that's, um, there's no separate nirvana. It's this world right here now actually is nirvana. It's just that we're all deluded somehow. Um, but uh, uh, Dan's wife, who, was, who didn't know uh, any of this language, thought that we were saying uh, nirvana is some sorrow, like sorrow, like, like sadness. And that, and that opened up uh, something nice in her because she's the kind of person who wants everyone to be like feeling good all the time. She's a physician and she's like a magnificent physician. And, and, um, and uh, to make room for sorrow in her, you know, in herself or in Dan, uh, felt like a relief. So that even misunderstanding the conversation, you know, she actually understood it better. Um, so I, I, I put that into the book in, in some form. So, um, so I'm very indebted to those conversations. Dan's, like, super nice about making me a character in the book, and, you know, I like that. I like being, I like being a character. Um, but, but, and that would be fine if that's all it was. But, uh, but I... The, the, uh, talking with Dan really pushed my thinking forward because he was always really wanting to know, like, what did I understand and what didn't I understand? And I, and I really wanted, had to try to dig down and find what I thought in response to his questions. So that, you know, that's a very rare, that, a very rare thing that uh, when uh, a friendship like that develops uh, around the Dharma, around something that's really very dear to me. Um, so, and I tape recorded a lot of all of these discussions, mm -hmm. um, and would go back and transcribe them and use them as the source material for the book. Um, <clears throat> and if you ever want to engage in and rampant self-loathing, tape record yourself having a conversation with a smarter person. <laughs> Just asking the same question over and over again for years, uh, and him just struggling to answer it, my interrupting him, usually with my mouth full of food and stuff like that. Uh, but these conversations form the backbone for my book and for my understanding of this material. Um, and I used to come, and I will do this later, I used to come with a series of questions in my Blackberry every time that I kept in a folder called Questions for Mark, uh, imaginatively titled folder. Um, and uh, and I would collect them during my practice and during my reading for the however many week interregnum between our meetings. And it would really be, I mean, it was amazing to any, anybody here who studies and practices meditation, lots of questions arise and you don't really have a, anybody to ask them of, uh, but I was able to um, bribe him into regular meetings that really uh, helped in, a lot, uh, in many, many ways. Um, there are a million ways we could go at this point. Do you want to, yeah, uh, me, do you want to read the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, let me just describe a little bit. <clears throat> so in the back of my mind, w once these conversations got going, I really wanted Dan to go on a retreat because he, was at, you know, he, he had developed a meditation practice, but my, my experience in trying to learn meditation is that it's one thing to do it for 20 minutes or half an hour or an hour uh, a day. It's another thing to go for a week or nine days or ten days or a weekend even and you know, try to do it the way they teach it at Barry or at Spirit Rock or whatever with a, an experienced teacher. That it always takes me about three days uh, at least to settle into it enough that, the, that I feel like 
you know, the meditation is starting to teach me instead of just me trying to do it. Um, so I, w I was always, you know, encouraging Dan, you should meet Joseph, you should go to Barry, you should go to Spirit Rock or whatever. And so I finally convinced him uh, after a couple of years to go do a retreat at Spirit Rock. So I just want to read you. It's, it's deep into his book, but um, he writes about going there for the first Suffice time. it to say, I didn't want to go. You did want to go. <clears throat> it was the longest, most exquisite high of my life, but the hangover came first. <laughs> Day one. Here's what I'm mindful of right now. Pervasive dread. I'm sitting in a cafe in San Francisco having what I assume will be my last decent meal before I check in, <laughs> before I check in for the Zen death march. As I eat, I leaf listlessly through the mimeographed information sheets sent by the people at the retreat center. The place is called Spirit Rock, which sounds like a New Age version of Fraggle Rock, <laughs> populated by crystal-wielding Muppets. The writing is a bristle with the type of syrupy language that drives me up a wall. Retreats offer a sacred space, protected and removed from the world, intended to allow participants to quiet the mind and open the heart. The sheets request that we, quote, take whatever room is offered, unquote, whether it's a single or a double. This sends unpleasant images dancing through my head of potential roommates who are all gray-haired, ponytailed, beret-wearing, wavy-gravy lookalikes. The chefs will, quote, lovingly prepare, unquote, Lacto-ovo vegetarian food. <laughs> we will be assigned daily yogi jobs, either in housekeeping or the kitchen, or ringing, be <laughs> or ringing bells, whatever that, <laughs> whatever that means. There's a lengthy list of, quote, what not to bring. <laughs> Seemingly written... <laughs> Seemingly written in 1983, <laughs> which includes beeper watches <laughs> and Walkmans. <laughs> the retreat will be conducted in, quote, noble silence, unquote, which means no talking to one another and no communication with the outside world, except in case of emergencies. The whole 10 days of no talking thing is the detail that everyone I told about the retreat keyed in on. To a man or woman, the people I had the courage to admit how I was spending my vacation asked something to the effect of, how can you go without talking for that long? <laughs> Silence, however, is the part that worries me the least. I don't imagine there will be many people at the retreat I'll be dying to chat with. <laughs> What truly scares me is the pain and boredom of sitting and meditating all day, every day, for 10 straight days. For a guy with a bad back and a chronic inability to sit still, this is definitely a suboptimal holiday. <laughs> I call a cab for the hour-long ride to northern Marin County. As we cross the Golden Gate, I feel like a lamb leading itself to slaughter. <laughs> I get an email from my friend saying he's envious of the experience I'm about to have. His timing is impeccable. It's an encouraging reminder that apparently these retreats can produce remarkable moments. 
In fact, I recently read a New York Times op-ed piece by Robert Wright, a journalist, polemicist, curmudgeon, and agnostic not known for either credulousness or mystical leanings. Wright wrote that he had just about the most amazing experience of his life on retreat, which involved finding a new kind of happiness and included a moment of bonding with a lizard. <laughs> However, major breakthroughs known in spiritual circles as peak experiences cannot be guaranteed. What is almost certain though, and even my friend acknowledged this, is that the first few days will be an ordeal. I'm casting forward to a day two or three in front, envisioning myself marooned and miserable. We roll up to Spirit Rock at around four in the afternoon. As we pull off the main road and onto the campus, I spot a sign that reads, yield to the present. Oh. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> The shit writes itself. <laughs> I mean, that it crystallizes a lot of my problems with... Yourself. Uh, yeah. No, actually, that, that's the entire rest of the book. Uh, with the way um, Buddhism and meditation is presented. Uh, I... Um, I think there's a much larger audience that could be reached. It could be, it could be talked about with a little bit of humor, a little bit more humor, um, and not like it's being read out of a fortune cookie, you know? And um, so that's, that's really what I, you know, ever since I met Mark, even before I met Mark, I kind of knew that I was going to try to do something. And my, you know, desire all along has been to try to contribute in a small way to pushing this a little bit further into the mainstream. Mm -hmm. um, having said that, all that stuff that I like to make fun of now, it's like, I'm so well, used to I'm so used Tell to them what happened, tell them what happened on the <clears throat> retreat. So the first three or four days were absolutely miserable and completely, even more horrific than I thought they were gonna be. And um, four or five days in, I, I was thinking about going home actually, because I just, I, I, was, I felt like a complete failure and there was this one teacher uh, named Spring, who sort of, <laughs> I could say this because she's given me permission to say it, uh, sort of embodied everything I like least about Buddhism. You know, she wore shawls and like long earrings. And, um, and she, sorry, I'm uh, looking around. <laughs> um, anyway, I, I had this moment of crisis where I really needed to talk to a teacher and she was the only one available. <laughs> and I went to her and I said, look, I am just, I'm just flailing here. I don't know what I'm going to do. And she said, uh, you're trying too hard. And I, I realized, okay, so I'm the asshole. Like, I'm the judgmental one. I have written this person off because of her shawls or whatever, but that is really good advice she's giving me. You're trying too hard. It's not like daily life where you do something and expect a, a, a response. Meditation is the opposite, where you're just watching whatever happens which is a radical thing to do. Uh, and I walked out of that session with her. I walked, instead of um, sitting with the, everybody else in the next uh, seating, uh, sit, next sit, um, I went to my room and pulled a chair out onto the balcony and, and sat there and had uh, my first like real breakthrough where I just, uh, I, as I say in the book, I felt like I had spent four days being dragged by my head behind a motorboat and then all of a sudden I got up on water skis. 
and everything that was happening in my mind I could see extremely clearly from the noises in the trees to the pain in my knee to my um, desire to kill various people at the retreat center to et cetera, et cetera. Um, and it was just, just really rapid, just seeing it, seeing it, seeing it. And it was accompanied by a huge blast of serotonin. And it was maybe the 36, competing with my wedding for the 36 happiest hours of my life. And uh, as with all things in Buddhism, it then tell, tell them about, tell them, tell <laughs> oh, them. Oh yeah, well, there's one detail. Yeah. Uh, so I'm, I'm, all the, I'm noticing all these things, you know, pain in my knee, the, I can hear the trees, whatever. I'm thinking about an apple I had in my room, illicit apple. And, um, <laughs> and, uh, and then I heard this noise, I mean, a really no loud noise. And I, uh, I'm, I'm noting it, I'm noting it, I'm noting it. And then I just, I had to open my eyes to see what it was. And there was a hummingbird right in front of me. Oh, these are Buddhists, they like that. <laughs> uh, yeah, so it was quite an experience. It was quite an experience. But as I said, with all things in Buddhism, uh, it, it did end. But it, it, that type of, I would say that I've never had that experience again. Um, but the memory of it and the ability to touch it in a little way anytime I drop the discursive thinking that we all do as a default mode at any point in my life is kind of what sustains me in my practice all the time. That you can continue, you can go back, it gave me a glimpse of something that I don't know, I may never get again. I, I'm trying to follow Spring's advice of not expecting any results. Um, but it does give me a glimpse that you can, when you drop this ego that, that, that oppresses us all day long, if you drop it just for a nanosecond, you, pretty cool things can happen. So I brought along one other thing <clears throat> to read that in a way is in, inspired by these conversations that, um, that Dan and I have been having. You know, he called his book 10% uh, Happier, which I, th I think is an interesting, you know, like what can meditation do for you? What can Buddhism do for you? Can it make you 100% happier? No. It, can it make you 10% happier? Maybe. What about enlightenment? That's 100% happier. Maybe. Maybe. I mean, enlightenment means that you're holding all the sorrow in the world, that, that, you're, that you're not shutting any of it away. So I don't know that really that you're so happy, there, but, but, but maybe. Um, but, it, but he made me, that this conversation about happiness, we, I sort of, you know, I'm, I'm a little wary of happiness as like the, the goal. Um, so I've been trying to think about what I might write about next, being, being relieved that I finally finished the seven years of the trauma book. Um, and uh, I decided for a long time when I finished the book that my favorite part about writing is when the book is done and I don't have to write anymore. So that there's like a nice six months or so. But then gradually it's like, okay, what am I going to do with this extra time, you know? So I decided that um, I wasn't so... The parts of that book that when I went around with the book, you know, on tour a little bit and so on, the parts that I read out loud to people were the more personal parts. They weren't really the, the, uh, the Buddhist biography, and it wasn't really so much about Winnicott. It was really when I was trying to write about 
you know, talking to my father when he was dying or talking to one of my patients or being on retreat and uh, wishing that they were uh, serving fresh baked bread because I wanted toast or that, you know, just like the little details. Um, so I decided if I'm going to write another thing, maybe I would try to write just from that voice. Um, and in particular, people are always wondering, you know, like, well, you're a Buddhist therapist. How does the Buddhism come into your therapy? Do you teach your patients to meditate? Which, uh, which I try not to do because they, they could come here to learn to meditate. They, you know, they shouldn't have to pay me for that. Um, but, I, but I've been trying, and, and Dan's questions also sort of play to this. I've been trying to think, well, how does it really, if it does come into my work, how does it come into my work? Um, and so I've started writing little bits, like, of what I can remember. I've, I never have liked writing about my patients that much because I don't like um, having to listen to what's going on with a sort of third ear for stealing it for, for a book, you know. Um, <clears throat> but, but I started writing a little bit. So I thought I would read you one little piece and to see how it, see what you think of it. So Dan could take credit. If it's any good, you could be, anyway. Um, Kate, uh, Kate works 45 hours a week in a clerical position at a Wall Street law firm. Can, can you hear me all right? Okay. She works 45 hours a week on Wall Street. Um, in a clerical position. Her boyfriend, with whom she lives in a studio apartment, is retired. He does many of the household chores while she is at work, the laundry, the shopping, and almost all of the cooking. He usually has a big dinner waiting, more than she really needs, she says, when she comes home. But Kate's boyfriend's standards of cleanliness do not match her own. The other day, she came home exhausted from work and found the apartment in disarray. The glass coffee table was littered with newspapers and empty coffee cups. The bed was unmade. Clothes were strewn around the bedroom floor. And when she went to the bathroom, she found the top of the toothpaste lying on the counter with the half-empty tube languishing nearby. She got angry and said something mean to him, something about the toothpaste and how much did he really care. She had asked him repeatedly. It would take about 20 seconds to make the place right. Was that too much to expect? Kate had lived with her boyfriend for more than 10 years. They had been through a lot together, and despite the tensions in their relationship, had continued to find solace and sustenance with each other. I knew when Kate began to tell me her story where it was going to lead. Kate's boyfriend had a temper, too. He did not take her irritation lightly. He blew up at her, and she ended up in the bathroom trying to calm down by smoking a cigarette, something they had both agreed she would not do in the house. They managed to stop the fight from escalating further, but did not speak for the rest of the evening. They had been civil the next morning until Kate left for her appointment with me. The tension she was carrying was still obvious, and Kate was clearly still outraged as she told me what had happened. I had been through far more serious confrontations than this with Kate in the process of her relationship, and I'm sure she was expecting sympathy from me, but sympathy is not what I offered. Why not just do it yourself, I asked. If it's only going to take 20 seconds, why not straighten up when you first come home and then pour yourself a glass of wine or something? I know it's not fair, but it would be a lot less painful than this. Kate did not immediately agree with me. I'm not even sure that after close to an hour of talking about it that she agreed with me, but she did hear me out. Her boyfriend had his strengths and his weaknesses. He was not exactly shirking domestic chores, even if he was unlikely to straighten up before she got home. 
She could pursue her notion of what was fair or what was right or what she was due or try to get him to see her point of view, or she could do the unacceptable thing of taking on the tasks herself. I'm not your maid, she had yelled at him before taking refuge in the bathroom, and I knew that she would hear my advice as at odds with her promise to herself to not become just that. Just because she was a woman, was she expected to do the picking up? You're not my mother, he had screamed back at her. This was doing nothing for their relationship, I thought to myself. In giving Kate my advice, I thought about my own home. My wife might not agree with me, since she certainly does not experience me as someone for whom a clean house is much of a priority, but I actually like it when the house is clean when I come home from work. On days when I come home and no one else is there, I will usually put things in order before doing anything else. I'll distribute the mail, clean off the dining room table, put away my old newspapers, fold up the blankets on the couch, put the dirty dishes in the dishwasher, and run the sponge over the countertops. If my wife is home, I'm much more liable to do nothing, figuring, much as Kate seemed to, that it's not my responsibility if someone is already there. Why is it easier for me to do these simple household tasks without resentment when I am alone, I asked myself. What meaning, if any, do I put on it if my wife does or doesn't clean up? I thought about it and then told Kate what I was thinking. It helped her to hear about my domestic life. It helped move the conversation from the principle of the thing toward a more open discussion about what it all meant. As nice as it would have been to come home to a clean apartment, Kate was giving a meaning to the mess that was not necessarily there. We could summarize it as follows. If her boyfriend really cared about her, he would take the 20 seconds to pick up before she got home. While I could see her point, and while it might even be valid, I did not agree. Kate was making her suffering more than it needed to be. And this is the point I forgot to say. I thought if I'm going to write another book, it would be about what I'm trying to do for my patients is to help them not make their suffering more than it already is. That that's that's actually the Buddhist uh, influence in my work. So I'm trying to use the most mundane example I could find in um, in this story. Um, So Kate was making her suffering more than it needed to be. It was bad enough to come home to a messy house. It was much worse to come home to a messy house inhabited by a boyfriend who did not care about her. Just pick up when you get home and then forget about it, I suggested. Was there anything particularly Buddhist to my advice? If so, was I just reinforcing some kind of negative stereotype of a Buddhist as a masochist or an enabler? Was I suggesting service or surrender out of my own fear of conflict or as a break on Kate's healthy aggression? Did she not have a right to get her own needs met? I struggled internally with these kinds of questions, even as I gave Kate my advice, but I felt strongly enough to tell her what I thought. In my head was the Buddhist verse from the Dhammapada, look to your mind, wise man, look to it well. It is subtle, invisible, treacherous. That's my, I love those three adjectives. Kate's mind was making a very reasonable request. Her outrage was understandable, and the demand on her boyfriend was not extreme. Couldn't he just pick up things before she got home from work? Was that really so much to ask? Yet her mind was giving the situation a meaning it did not have, and this was keeping her in its thrall. Buddhism teaches us to look carefully at such situations. Pride, it is often said, is the last fetter to enlightenment. If one can believe the ancient Buddhist psychologists, many other destructive emotions, anger, jealousy, and envy among them, are easier to eradicate than pride. Even among very accomplished spiritual people, it has long been acknowledged the tendency to compare self and other remains. 
If meditation can teach us anything useful, it is to loosen the attachments we have to our own indignation. How do you use meditation in your relationship, I once asked an old friend, a longtime Zen student named Richard Barsky, many years ago, before his untimely early death from myeloma, when he was one of the only married people I knew. By letting go, even when you know you are right, he responded. When my wife reads this over someday, she will roll her eyes. You don't practice what you preach, she yelled at me the other day, when we were fighting about the way I had just been snide with her. I had denied being snide. She was trying to get a portable bed bug heater working to put our grown son's luggage in when he returned home from a trip, and I wouldn't help her figure it out. Ever since having bed bugs in our house, we had both done everything in our power to prevent having them again. This included buying a portable oven into which we could put our luggage when we returned home from staying in a hotel. The first such heater had been recalled as a fire threat, however, and the replacement had arrived just in time for our son's impending return. As much as I dreaded the thought of more bed bugs, I did not share my wife's zeal for the hardware. Aware of my irritation with her preoccupation with it, I made some kind of ostensibly reassuring comment to her that the machine was working fine. (laughs) Knowing me too well to be fobbed off by my reassurance, my wife heard only the condescension or irritation in my voice. I didn't think I had done anything wrong, but she was furious with me. For several hours, I held to my position. I was being unjustly accused of something I I had not done and didn't intend. I was innocent. She was just using this as an excuse to be angry with me. After some time, my wife explained why she was upset and asked for an apology, but did not like the one I offered. (laughs) I understood why, since I did not really feel I had anything to apologize for. A snide comment about her fear of bedbugs? Not even a comment, in fact, just something in my tone. I had to apologize for that? If I had been taking my own advice, of course, the advice I was giving to Kate... I would have gone right over when she had asked for help and helped her. The machine was not working properly, in fact, but I left her to figure it out by herself. I could have saved us several hours of pain by being less of an asshole. (laughs) But it's difficult not to be swayed by the mind. In the moment of watching my wife try to figure out the bed bug heater, I knew I was right. She was intensely preoccupied, and it bothered me. I was probably wrong, but that is not the only important point. If my friend Richard Barsky knew what he was talking about, letting go even when you know you are right is the thing to practice in those situations. My wife was better at it than I was when we managed to resolve our fight. Even after several attempts, she knew my apology was not completely sincere. But to her ultimate credit, she let it go. I, sh- I showed it to my patient today, who I was writing about, and she thought it was a little too long. But... It's reassuring to know that he would shrink his with their wife. Mm-hmm. I think the book should be called Confession of a Buddhist Shrink. Uh-huh. Could be, it could be, it could be good. Yeah, yeah. It could be really good. I like it a lot. Thank you. I like it a lot. Um, what is the, what is the t- how much time we, do we, we have? We can, we can go till nine, but we should keep some time for okay. questions. So... I thought we would do, we have a little bit of time, so I thought before we opened it up to mm-hmm. questions that I would uh, do my little thing of asking Mark a bunch of questions. Um, I have come up with a bunch. <laughs> True to form. Um, Mark, I've been getting a lot of questions as I do press about uh, 
I've been getting a lot of questions when I uh, do interviews about the book about um, whether getting happier through meditation, whatever that means, uh, will make you less effective in your job, especially if you have a competitive job. And I was doing an interview at the last place I ever think they would want to talk about this at Fox News the other day. <laughs> and uh, that's why that's why you're number two already. <laughs> the reporter asked me about Rocky Free, which is a oh. great question. I hadn't thought about Rocky Three in a long time, but Rocky Three starts with Rocky, who has been just become world champion. Uh, this um, montage of Rocky beating the crap out of uh, out of lesser boxers and in commercials for American Express and living in a mansion with his wife and gallivanting around with his kid and uh, and then it's cut against a very angry, hungry-looking Mr. T, Clubber Lang, who's um, you know uh, lean and mean and uh, and the Eye of the Tiger is playing over it and then of course this sets up. The uh, Rocky's gone soft and Clever Lang's going to take him down. So people think that when you get that, if you meditate and become calmer and nicer and happier, that you're going to uh, lose your edge and be like Rocky Three. What is, wh when people ask you that question, if they do, mm. um, what is your response? Well, it, I think I'm it steal it using my interviews. It, de it depends which 10% is happier, y you know, like where the happiness is. Um, that if you're really getting anything from from, me from meditation, what is it really that you're that's contributing to the happiness? Because because I think it's possible it's possible to use meditation to find a happiness that removes you from yourself or from the world or from your your edge, as you might say, or from your, your uh, ambition, or, or from what you care about even. It's, it's possible to find a kind of happiness that one could, um, you know, lose oneself in in a sort of pleasurable way. Um, and I don't really think that's the happiness that you're writing about. Uh, but it might be the happiness that people are envisioning when they're asking about meditation. I, I, I think the the, the, the kind of enduring happiness, if meditation does affect happiness at all, which I have some questions about, because I, I think in some way we, we, there's a set point to happiness, um, and that we all hover around a certain amount of happiness that we're capable of, and that we shouldn't have to feel bad if we're unhappy. It's bad enough being unhappy. We shouldn't have to feel <laughs> we shouldn't have to feel ashamed of being unhappy. Your yeah, yeah. Um, but I do think that the the kind of happiness that one can feel coming out of the retreat, for example, when you come back, when you come back into the world, sometimes that happiness that you feel coming out of the retreat fades right away because the world's too overwhelming, and actually you feel sort of a little, a little uh, too vulnerable. But not talking about that so much. The the kind of happiness that one can find on the retreat um, has something to do with being able to be more yourself <clears throat> in the world. So it, more, I think, attentive to the needs of self and other. You know, so more connected, we might say. Uh, and that, I don't think, has to be at odds with uh, working hard. You, you know, I, I think, in fact, it could allow you um, to focus uh, on your work 
um, if it's important to you and you feel like it's, you know, you're doing it for the right reasons kind of thing, that it could, it, it could unburden you to, uh, uh, so I don't think it needs to, although I think it could. But do you think, I, I don't have the answer to this and I've struggled with it in the interviews, but it seems like there's um, not a clear consensus on what happiness even means. Yeah. And it seems that people conflate it with complacency or, well, I like the stuff that Joseph Goldstein, I'm sure most of you here are familiar with him, eminent uh, um, Buddhist teacher, uh, teacher. Uh, he talks about uh, people in, my, in our society really getting confused between happiness and excitement. Mm -hmm. uh, excite, the excitement of a meal, the excitement of a vacation, which of course is not going to last. Um, but the, and I don't even know, I mean, I don't even know how I would define happiness. Well, the Dalai Lama started a lot of this with, you know, his, his stump speech that he gives is like, all people want to be happy. You know, like that's what unifies us. We're all, we're, we're, there's a sense of, he's talking about dukkha, really. You know, there's a sense of suffering that we all share, that we all know what that is implicitly. Um, you know, the actual word dukkha means hard to face. So that there, there's an aspect of life for most people that's hard to face, you know, death being primary, the primary uh, representation of that. But and then he always says, you know, but all beings want to be happy. That's something that we all share. And then and then <clears throat> his he never defines happiness, but I think Im implicit in what he's saying is that our conventional understanding of happiness, which is pleasurable sensory experience is uh, that there's another kind of happiness you know that the Bo that the Buddha talked about so what is that other kind of happiness because I think that's what your book is reaching for and that and that's what the what the Dalai Lama is you know implicitly pushing people towards and he always goes right to compassion you know which is another difficult word to figure out what does it really mean but uh, the opening yourself enough to be of service to other people brings a kind of happiness that is not the conventional one of uh, you know pleasant sensory experience and i think I think that there 's something important there but isn 't there a kind of happiness too and maybe this is what I was reaching for in part the just to having the the wherewithal and the self-awareness and the mindfulness to see what's happening at any given moment without getting carried away by yeah, it. Yeah, well, mm -hmm. I mean, that, that I find... There's maybe a kind of happiness that comes in not being stuck in yourself. Yes. Yes. That's, that's like, tremendously... Um, uh, gives a real feeling of relief. And knowing... Um, know, I know that... I notice that when I'm doing open awareness meditation and uh, so instead of just focusing on the breath I'm focusing on whatever comes up if I'm on a good jag one of the things I find myself noting a lot is self-congratulation um, <laughs> but there's there is a feeling of ruggedness a resilient internal ruggedness and resilience that can come from knowing all right I can I can take a lot of what the ego is coughing up um, and I don't know if that is happiness per se but it, it feels in like it's in the neighborhood well, the, there's also a kind of happiness that comes directly out of meditation. I mean, there's, a, there's joy that, in my experience anyway, like of, of being on these retreats, that 
if I just do the practice, that's like going to the, to the Beckett play and so on. If I just, like the first few days of a retreat, if I just make myself watch the in-breath, the out-breath, the touching, you know, and sit there every hour after hour, after a few days, a real lightness, it just comes. And, and it's like nothing, a sweet, there's like a sweetness and a happiness and a joy and a, a buoyancy. I don't know what kind of you know, ways to describe it, but it, it's, um, it pretty reliably just appears uh, after three or four days, uh, except when it doesn't appear. And then, <laughs> and then, you know, I've spent retreats looking for it, you know, like with trying a little too hard, like you were describing. I, I had a... The last retreat that I went on, I had a very good kind of surprising uh, encounter with the, the teacher at the Forest Refuge, who I didn't know and had never talked to before, but who I, I went into sort of similarly to, to where you, how you were describing, after four days probably, and, and I was just, it was fine, but, I, but nothing special was happening, and I was getting sort of irritated. What, what? Was she wearing any shawls? It was a he. Oh, it was a he. It Sorry. was a he. Was he wearing uh, socks and sandals? Yeah. <laughs> he, uh, Bracelets? he was a German guy. He was like a hip German guy. Right. I was surprised. He, he, no, 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 like, no. Art, like an architect, you know, like good glasses and stuff. Sprockets. He was together. <laughs> he was together. And, um, and he listened. I was like, he listened to what I was saying, and, and he said something like, don't chase her. Let her come to you. And with a German accent, slightly German accent. And, and I was like, did I hear him right? Like he gendered it, you know? He gendered it in the feminine. And I, and, and I, knew, when, I knew when he said that, that he knew something about me. You, you know, that, that, the, that there's, it's like that place where you know, the, the erotic side of meditation, you, you know, where... Never found that. Yeah, yes, you did. Not once. With the hummingbird. Not erotic. You did, with the, with the hummingbird. <laughs> you, didn't, you, you didn't tell them how you started to cry. That was a completely different story. You'll have to tell that story. I'll tell that story. But uh, actually, what you're t- do, you want, do you have more to no, say? Yeah, but uh, go ahead. No, 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 you go. Because I was going to ask a question based on what you were saying. So go ahead, ask the question. Well, I was just going to ask you about daily practice, because I think everybody here cares about that. Um, that for me, I, I've heard a lot of long-time practitioners, even short-time practitioners, talk about how meditation feels great. But for me, it feels like shit. You know, it's like going to the gym. If you're doing it right, it should suck. I mean, that's the point. I mean, it's hard. <laughs> But for me, every day, every time I do it, like without fail, maybe there are a few moments that feel good, but it's like doing bicep curls. You know, it's, it's not fun. Um, but you, I've actually heard say that you, it's like great. It's for an hour. It's awesome. So what am I, does that mean I'm doing it wrong? You've never What's heard me deal? say that. Yes, I have. Um, I have it on tape. You, you very well could be doing it wrong. Oh, that's great. But probably you're not. Uh-huh. You know, I, I think the... The most common thing that I hear from people is because the mind is wandering and they're full of, you know, like difficult feelings and it's a struggle, that they're not really doing it right, you know, and so they just want to stop. And, and I think there's really no such thing as doing it wrong, you know. 
I, I think that's the key is like if you can sit there with your mind, you're doing it. Um, and you never know when it, when when or if or even if it's even supposed to be different than that. Like the problem with these stories that I'm telling of like, oh, the sweet thing that descends upon you, you know, at some point. The, the problem with that is the problem of having the experience in the first place, that then you set that up as that's the point, you, you know. And those sweet experiences that are definitely not the point, they're sort of like a nice fruit, you, you know, that keeps you believing maybe a little. They encourage a, some kind of trust that this isn't just nothing, you know. But I think the, the point is really to cultivate the ability to be with yourself no matter what. Cause, as if we really were practicing for dying or something, you know? Like, you're not going to be able to control this thing. I don't see it as, I mean, I know that it's supposed to be practicing for dying and all that stuff, but for me, the, be, the ability to see what's going on in my head at any given moment without getting carried away is a superpower. And I view it in much more crass, professional terms where I can be sometimes like the calmest person in the room in a high-pressure situation because I can spot like a kind of inner meteorologist seeing the outer bands of the hurricane. I can see myself getting angry and let it pass, you know, like not shove it away, but just see that it's happening and not take the bait every time. Mm-hmm. Um, I, know, I know we're supposed to be practicing for dying and all that stuff, but that's not my, well, that's no, not my I think that that's thing. true for me as a therapist. I think I really use it. It, it, when I'm working as a therapist in that same way. Well, you might feel annoyance that your patient is whining about the set, same yeah, thing. Yeah, I never feel annoyance. That my pa- <laughs> <laughs> I always imagine that's what my shrink is feeling. In fact, he pretty much says it, actually, you're being annoying. But there's a lot to be learned. When you're working as a therapist, there's a lot to be learned by watching your own experience of, from what the other person is telling you. And so even when the thing I was reading, like, my associating to the bed bug thing and my own experience with my wife, you know, that's all part of how I'm talking to my patient. That's all happening in the, you know, silently within the frame, you know. So I'm sure you're, you're, in a, you're not being a therapist, but you're still in, you know, you're live on camera with a lot of strange people. <laughs> that's putting it mildly. Um, let me see if I asked all the questions I wanted to ask. I did, actually. So we have enough time to open it up for questions. Um, and if you don't, I will continue peppering Mark as is my want. Um, here you go. So, um, <clears throat> like this? Okay. So I'm grateful that you wrote your book of why you said you wrote it, that it will introduce a lot of people to something that Thanks. they might not have otherwise. Um, I wanted to ask this question about happiness. Um, and I've been on a couple of uh, loving-kindness retreats, like with Sharon and some of the other familiar teachers mm-hmm. that you guys know. And on the last one, there was a talk about um, loving-kind, about the Brahma Viharas. I'm not a Buddhist uh, academic, so if I get this wrong, loving-kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. And so... Um, happiness when you do the loving-kindness meditation is uh, free from mental suffering. And so when you were talking about happiness, all these different other versions of happiness, in the the teachings, um, and I'm not a Buddhist, I'm 
Jewish, but I am finding a lot of um, useful stuff in these Buddhist teachings. Is, is, does happiness come up in lots of other places? Is it explained differently than free from mental suffering in other places? Yeah. Or is happiness really just free from mental suffering? Well, I think happiness really is just free from mental suffering, but, they, but um, the Buddhists with happiness are like the Eskimos with snow. You, you know, they have like 20 different words for it. They, they can see it from lots of different angles, and they understand, like, there's a happiness that comes with a concentrated mind, you know. There's a, there are, there's a, a kind of happiness that they call rapture, um, that has five grades. The first grade makes your hair stand on end, and the, the second or third one, you feel like waves of bliss moving through your body, and the fourth one, you feel like you're a rock cavern inundated by the ocean, and the fifth one, you, you levitate off your seat and you have psychic powers or something. Um, uh, you know, and they talk, there, there are ancient textbooks that describe all of that. The, in particular, they like to tie the different kinds of happiness to different achievements in meditation. That's what they're mostly... The, the classic Buddhist psychologies are mostly, uh, mostly around that. Uh, and then they compare them often to the, the everyday happiness. Uh, they, talk, they compare the Brahma Viharas, for instance, to the, the different kinds of happiness that a mother feels with their child. A one kind being like with an infant, another kind being like when a, when a child learns to walk, another kind being like when a child goes off on his own and you're happy that they can be independent, another kind being the kind of happiness you have when the child uh, uh, finds someone to love themselves, you know, that kind of thing. So the descriptions are beautiful. Um, and it's nice to know, like the, the Buddhists are known for their... Uh, belief in suffering, but actually it's a religion of, of joy, you know. You had a question right here. Yeah, it's been fun to listen to you guys. Thank you for that. And similar to you, I went to my first retreat really hungover and ended up, the, by the end of it, with kidney stones. It was the last day. But in between that, it was around um, experience and going from really high and really awake and swimming and by the end throwing up from pain but checking out this really cool bug at the same time so getting that whole thing around impermanence going from high to low and it's all just experience so it kind of hearing what you guys are saying around happiness it sounds more like just wakefulness or being awake to the moment almost like Goldman would say with emotional intelligence yes so I'm not quite sure if it's the happiness you're talking about or just being awake to the moment, whether it's the compassion or sadness or the fear, and just being with that. that, that that's the way, for most of the time, I experience it. It's not so much uh, happiness that is like Rocky Three happiness where um, I'm, you know, relaxing back in my mansion uh, while, you know, Clever Lang's out there looking to take me down. It's more like uh, I'm awake, the mental noise has diminished to a certain extent, and I am not as carried away by the bullshit as I used to be, you know, um, because I'm, I'm seeing it more clearly. I, ha I hesitate to use that uh, language that would indicate that I'm seeing it clearly all the time. There's mm -hmm. a reason why I called it 10% happier. And in fact, if my wife was up here, we could have a long talk about the 90%. <laughs> 
But I think, I, I think another thing that's really good about Dan's book that we haven't stressed so much in this, in this discussion yet is that one of the ways that he's really talking about happiness, his own happiness that he found, is that the, the meditation practice helped him be what he sometimes says, and in which I appropriated in the thing that I wrote, uh, has helped him be less of an asshole. You, you know, that, it, that it, um, uh, it gives you... Yeah. He, just, gives he you, can't say it, but um, his partner's patting his knee, so... <laughs> There's choice. There's always, there, there really is always choice about how you're going to act, you know, what you're going to say, what you're going to say and how you're going to act. There's always a moment of choice. You don't really have choice over what you're thinking, and you certainly don't have choice about what you're feeling, but you do have choice about how you behave. And the, the meditation, because it helps you see what you're thinking and what you're feeling, and it helps you be with it without being immediately reactive. It's training you to not be immediately reactive. So it's opening up a little bit of choice. And so we, the, the Buddhist thing about karma, really, you know, is that we're conditioning ourselves all of the time. You, you know, that we actually, that question of is there free will or not free will, there's a little bit of free will all of the time. And by opening up that space with the meditation, we're actually able to configure ourselves, you know, into the future slightly differently than we might if we were just at the mercy of our minds. So extending the time between stimulus and response. Yeah, expand, yeah. It, it, it's, it's all of those things you hear at retreats, but it, these the, the, for me, as a, at the shallow end of the pool, the beginning Buddhist, uh, it's that. It's the respond, not react. Uh, space between stimulus and response cliches that we get thrown out. I mean, th that is the fruit for me. And I would say the other part of it is what the other the first question we talked about um, is is compassion, for lack of a less embarrassing word, um, which is that you you become less of a dick. I mean, it's just true. Uh, and part, I think the first step of that is just when you are confronted with the circus of your own mind, uh, you can see why other people are doing stupid stuff. <laughs> Uh, and then, a, then a, if you actually do the practice, the, the compassion meditation practice, which is like horribly embarrassing, um, but, but works, and we can say this from a, a um, I know Mark's not so comfortable with this stuff, but there's some neuroscience to back it up. Um, because he, he thinks we overstate the science sometimes, he's probably right about that. Um, but it's compelling nonetheless. I think that it has the effect of taking you out of yourself in the same way that mindfulness does, in, in a different way, but it has the same ultimate effect, for me at least, uh, which is to give you some distance from the Eckhart Tolle-esque, relentlessly self-referential, negative, repetitive voice that many of us live with from the moment we open our eyes in the morning. Um, question? Can you, I have a question. Yeah, is you okay? <clears throat> Will you, can you talk about the compassion, like your... When you did those compassion practices? Oh, right, right, right. So this is another spring story. Um, when I was on retreat, uh, spring got up on the second day or whatever in, in the afternoon, one of the afternoon sittings and said that we're going to do something different during the sitting. We're going to do a compassion meditation, which I had never heard of before and immediately disliked. Uh, <laughs> and it, it will, I think everybody here, most of you know what it is, but I'm sure there are a few who don't, so I'll just explain it, which is, 
the, the, the routine is you basically call up an image of a series of people starting with yourself, then a mentor, uh, sometimes it's Mark, um, and uh, then a, a dear friend, a neutral person, a difficult person, et cetera, et cetera. And you systematically send them good vibes, like may you be happy, may you be safe, et cetera, et cetera. Like I said, it sounds pretty dopey when you describe it for the first time, but it is uh, sort of a, a exercising this muscle, uh, which I think is a pretty radical notion because we are, many of it, I certainly did, and I think a lot of us do harbor these assumptions, subconscious or conscious, that we are as nice as we're ever going to be, and that may not, we may not rank too high on the scale, uh, at least that's the way I felt. But the notion that you can actually make yourself not nicer is pretty extraordinary. Um, so anyway, after a couple of days of doing this compassion meditation in the afternoons at the retreat, I, uh, which thoroughly disgusted me, after my breakthrough, uh, the breakthrough, for lack of a better term, with the hummingbird, uh, I, the next session was the meta session, meta session and um, I am, uh, I, you might have picked this up from just my general demeanor, but I'm not a super sentimental guy. And um, uh, when we started doing that, the meta, uh, I started uh, weeping. Not like weeping like out loud, but uh, tears running down my face, kind of choking uh, as I was picturing my mom and my niece. Uh, and it was, that was, uh, let's just say I've been doing meta ever since. Why, why do you think you were tearful? I think it was an undiluted experience of wishing well for another person with no self-interest on my part, mm -hmm. really. I mean, then it felt good, so then it kind of, you know, it, it can get pretty self-interested pretty quickly, but uh, <laughs> in those moments of, uh, I, I'm not, I, as we discussed, I'm not a huge believer in like the purity of uh, intention or emotion at any given moment, but uh, yeah, that, that's really what it was for me. The, the undiluted. Yeah, the undiluted. Part. So why the tears? I don't know, you're the shrink, why did I cry? <laughs> no, really, Wait, what do you think? Uh... It's for the same reason I, I said I can't, I don't know beyond the fact that it just, I was feeling this, this sort of distilled love for the people I was picturing in my mind, including my mother and my niece. Yeah. It felt really good. Felt good. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It was similar, it was like a non-synthetic version of what you can feel on certain drugs. Mm-hmm. sort of a self-generated version, not like just about to end version, uh, not am I going to be hungover version. Mm -hmm. Anyway, enough about me. Next question. <laughs> Hi. I just first want to say I think it's really brave for you to speak out about how you dealt with these challenges and, Thanks. you know, open up to the public about very vulnerable and, and personal topics. And... I'm just curious, when you say that now you're at a point due to meditation and all these things that you can be in an extremely stressful situation and somehow mindfully step away instead of reacting or being angry, can you just walk us through what goes through your head so you don't lose it and then let the situation overcome you? Yeah, I will just 
redirect everybody's attention to the title of the book, not just because I want you all to buy the book, but because I don't want you to think that this happens all the time. 10% of the time, I'm able to see what's going on, so I'll walk you through it. Let me give you a universal example, and then I'll give you a, a more, I'll try to come up with a more personal example. I think, and this language would be familiar to the Buddhists in the room, that we, at least pre-meditation, live in a very habitual, automatic way. So you're online at Starbucks, say, and somebody cuts you off, and you have this thought, unsummoned, out of the void, I'm angry. And immediately, reflexively, you inhabit the thought. You become angry. With mindfulness on board, you might recognize the burning in your chest, the heat in your ears, the starburst of um, don't you know who I am type thoughts, uh, and recognize, okay, so this is anger overcoming me. And instead of going with it and having a sharp word with somebody when it's not really that big of a deal, you'll get your latte 30 seconds later, you just kind of let it wash over, or even better, say, hmm, that's interesting, that's what anger tastes like. Um, so how does that work in my daily life? Well, you know, in a hectic job, um, as you know, I'm sure we all have stressful uh, things that we have in our life, my job can be pretty fast-paced, uh, and sometimes, for example, I'm in a meeting where uh, we're going over a story, and it's on deadline, so that story has to air tonight, and I've written the script, and I'm with uh, senior producers whose job it is to edit the script, and, um, and they may have suggestions that I don't agree with, and I'm running out of time before airtime, and I think this person's, you know, an idiot, and uh, whatever, whatever, you know, how dare they correct my, um, my writing, I've been in this business longer than you, all these, you know, stupid thoughts that we have, well, sometimes they're connected to reality, sometimes they're not. I'm now, 10% of the time, better at recognizing what's going on before I say something I regret later and then have to do a lot of apologizing. Um, and you know what I found is often the quote-unquote idiot is right, just like spring was on retreat. You know, that the judgments that I reached unthinkingly uh, or overthinkingly uh, were, were just completely wrong. And that has helped me in all sorts of selfish ways because I then get to steal that person's idea, make it look like I'm smarter than I actually am on television in front of millions of people. <laughs> Uh, any more questions? I keep waiting for my wife to raise her hand and ask a question. That would be awesome. <laughs> uh, um, this, this is from Mark. It's not exactly a question, but I'm really glad that you told that bed bug story. Uh, because I, I'm a long-time meditator, and I had the exact same experience with my wife over the exact same topic. And... Um, but I think that's good, because it, it really speaks to what Dan is saying. Yeah. Is that, you know, because uh, I'm, I'm waiting through um, uh, Dan Siegel's book, The Mindful Brain. Yeah. And it's, it makes things out to be this incredible panacea. And I think this 10% uh, idea is really I know. A, a wonderful. I, me too. And so I'm really I'm glad that you... It. I'm sorry? I'm going to patent it. <laughs> <laughs> Proceeds uh, going to New York Insight. So I'm, I'm, I'm really glad you told that story. Yeah. Um, well, it's easier to talk about sex than it is about bed bugs these days. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but I think it's, but it gets really to the point. Yeah. Well, the, it, 
I'm not sure what point it gets to, except that, except that the, um, like you're saying, th those kinds of conversations or disagreements or just trying to cooperate, try, I think that's what it is. Like, it's hard to cooperate in, at work or in a marriage or in a family or where, wherever, and there, there's lots of room for irritation. Um, and lots of room for for projection, which is sort of like what Dan's talking about with the the other people's ideas that Im immediately you have an aversive response to because it wasn't yours, and it's easy to take it as a critique and so on. But so to be able to give yourself a chance to look at things or hear things differently, that that's a real benefit, you, you know that. Um, uh, is available to all of us to the extent that we're actually practicing what we're what we're attempting to practice. You know. But if I may, I mean, I think your point was and it was uh, was that you you just because you're a meditator, you're not going to be a perfected being. You're still going to fight with your wife about bedbugs. It's just the way it is. Um, and we shouldn't expect. Um, we are peddled uh, this message a lot in American culture that you, you buy this one book and it's going to heal your life. That is actually the title of a book. Uh, sold a lot. Um, or you can get whatever you want through the power of positive thinking. This is, uh, this is just not true. I think it's a, it's not a, it's a harmful message to be sending to people. So, and I think it's, uh, as, as Ram Dass said, I can't believe I'm not one of these guys. <laughs> he's cool, yes, I know. I'm not saying he's not cool, but... Uh, you become a connoisseur of your neuroses, right? You don't you don't have to be too upset by the fact that they're still there. Mm -hmm. um, you, they can become funny after a while, which is why that passage he read us is very funny. I think we have time for a couple more questions. I thank you both very much. Um, I think something that you said really, really resonated with me. And that's the space between the stimulus and the response. For me, that's the place of joy, of happiness, mm. when there is no expectations and that I'm trying too hard and I don't have to. And that's when the tears start to flow when someone says to me, you're trying too hard. I can then relax into that space and let everything's okay. It's not that I won the lottery or the pit, you know, the pits of hell, but it's somewhere in between where I can just, it's okay. Bed bugs, fighting with the husband, um, the joy that you share with somebody, it's all within my reach. That's what it does for me. I think that's very well said, and that's what, I don't know if, that, if, if, if it's, the traditional definition of happiness. I mean, we don't, I don't even know what happiness means. The root of it, I stole this from somebody else, but I put it in my book. Um, that the HAP is actually, a, the root it means luck. view of happiness as being the result of external stuff. But for me, there is a source of happiness and also sort of, as I said before, self-congratulation of being able to just to see whatever's there at any given moment without giving into it in any particular way. Mm. Does that make any sense? Do you yeah, agree with no, that? No, I agree with that. Okay. But I think the one thing, like I, I love what you said, but I, but I think one of the conversations that Dan and I had that he ended up putting in his book 
was about <clears throat> using the meditation to rest too much in just the way things are rather than feeling like you still have a right to try to change things. You know, so I think it's just as possible to use the meditative awareness to free up your aggressive strivings, you know, that needs to that you need in order to try to change things. You know, like we, we, we want to get rid of the bed bugs, we don't just want to live with them. You, you know, we want to end suffering, we don't just want to like okay, there's like suffering and there's nothing to do, we might as well just rest in the in the space, you you know? So we um that's um, there's more room to act effectively when we're not just stimulus bound, but it doesn't mean that we don't uh, that we still don't act. That's all. I, I know you know that already, but any other questions, or shall we? Yeah. Um, Mark, I'm reading your trauma book, and um, it's gotten me through a terrible divorce, so thank you so much. Um, My question is also about happiness. Um, Since you both seem to be, maybe you wake up in the morning trying to make other people happy, you wrote this book, and Mark, this is your dedicated to this. You said that, I think, Mark, you said you really can't define happiness. There is no definition of happiness, but how would you define, like, Dan, when you wrote the book, what is it that you were, what was your vision for people reading the book? And Mark, when you're working with your patient, what is your vision that you want to accomplish with the people that you're reaching? Well, I think I, I tried to articulate that before, that I, the closest that I can come to talking about what my vision is in terms of my work with people is to try to help them not make their suffering worse than it is already. You, you know, and... Uh, often people are coming to see me because that's what they're doing. You, you know, they're making it a little bit worse than it has to be, and they can use the conversation somehow as useful um, so that they can stop doing that, and that eases, that eases the suffering just a little. So that, that feels worthwhile to me. Yeah, I guess my vision would be sort of just get, letting everybody else, especially people who are skeptical about the word meditation no less I mean uh, never mind the actual act of it um, giving them an open mind about this this practice that can do at, at least two things for you one is to help you learn how to respond instead of react to the stuff that comes up in your mind and not hold yourself responsible for whatever you're feeling just because you're feeling annoyed doesn't mean you are a bad person um, and just uh, managing your own stuff in that in that way, and then the other is, um, I think, using it to be uh, nicer. Mm-hmm. Both of which are doable, and cheap, and nothing to join, and no special outfits to wear. You, you can wear shawls; that's cool. <laughs> no no dues to pay. Um, totally portable, um, and scientifically somewhat uh, tested and validated. So, mm-hmm. I mean, that my my desire would be to spread that gospel, for lack of a better term, a little bit farther. That's probably a good place to close. Mm-hmm. Um, Being nicer. Yeah. <laughs> I like My wife's that. in the front row like, yes, yeah. yes. <laughs> uh, thank you, everybody. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.